The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation he provides for all who submit to him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. Leonard Cohen's 1984 song, Hallelujah, isn't a religious song, although it has some biblical content in it, as we're going to see as it relates to the story of King David. But man, it is one of the most musically beautiful and haunting songs. I'd say especially Jeff Buckley's cover of it. Not sure that it's one that a Christian who's really trying to put good godly thoughts into their mind wants to be listening to. But if you've heard the song, you know it well. And it's a song about, well, it's not a song about God, really, although the title literally means praise Yahweh, praise Yah, praise Yahweh, praise God. Um, But it's not really a song about religion, it's not really a song about God, it's not really a song about spirituality, or at least, well, I guess it is actually about spirituality. The song is about the spirituality that people derive from relationships, from romantic love from sex, honestly. And of course, you know, there's a lot of religious beliefs and practices from ancient times up until now that are oriented around that. But the song describes an illicit romance or a failed romance or broken romances or broken hearts. And I don't know what the author was going through. And honestly, when you read the lyrics, there's sort of an emotional and um, mental jumble a little bit when you read it. But he uses the story of King David And I think what is an important way, because I think when you read the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, the author here expresses what a lot of people feel and think whenever they they read that story. Here's how the lyrics go, at least for the first couple of verses. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. Here the author is referring to when David, early in his story, played the harp for King Saul. And, of course, David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so he's uh, drawing on that, on those sort of notions. But then the, the speaker speaks to the, the subject of the song. says, but you don't, you don't really care for music, do you? The music, it goes like this. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. Talking about the actual content of the song and the sound of the song. And then he comes back to the image of David there the one that played and he pleased the Lord. But then the images of the king, and it says the baffled king composing hallelujah. Uh, Now, are we talking about David or are we talking about the speaker? And I think the point is both. Here, David is portrayed as this baffled king, which is kind of how the speaker in the song thinks of himself. And he's trying to sing, oh, praise God, pray, like have joy, you know, even call on others to be happy and excited and praise God and all that sort of thing. But he's sort of confused as he does it. The second verse goes into the actual story of David and Bathsheba and really hits on the illicit romantic failures of the, the speaker in the song. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. And here the author deviates from, um, from any kind of biblical imagery and he blends the story of David with the story of Samson. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips, she drew the hallelujah. Here you see this man, the baffled king who was playing to please the Lord on his in musical instruments. 
here he's been captivated by the beauty of this woman. He's given in to his desire for her, and she's removed him of strength. The cutting of the hair is a reference to the story of Samson and Delilah, who she had his hair cut, and his strength that he had from God was taken away from him. She broke your throne. You're no more. You're no longer the king. You've been broken down by this woman, maybe more broadly, by this love that you gave into, that you wanted so badly, and you gave into it. And now, while you're in love, it draws this broken hallelujah. It seems to me the author here is is presenting um, an image of how love and romance and pursuing sexual relations can really break you. And of course, that's true. The Bible speaks to that a lot. But here he's speaking about the story of King David in this tragic sort of way. And I suppose tragic tragic is a good word to describe David in this period that this song is, is speaking about in the story with Bathsheba. But not tragic in the sense of, oh, a tragedy happened to him. Oh, no, look at this sympathetic figure. Matter of fact, in the, in the song lyrics here, David is presented as, and the speaker of, in the song who sort of aligns himself with David, he sees himself as this figure who's been victimized by love and by desire and by romance. But that's not... That meanwhile, he has good intentions as he cries out, Hallelujah. That's not the true story. And I'm sorry to tell you that David, the man after God's heart, um, had an absolutely massive failure in the story with Bathsheba. And I think it's an important story that we get right. I think it's an important story that we understand. I think God thinks it's an important story. Not only do we have the story in the text in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we also have reference to this later in the period of the kings where David will be referenced and it'll speak about how David, the spirit of the scriptures will speak about how uh, David did what was right in the sight of the Lord in all things except in the matter of the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that's speaking of Bathsheba. Whenever you come to the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, all the ancestors of Jesus are identified. And you know who's specifically highlighted? Not every single ancestor is highlighted there, by the way. But one of the ones who's specifically highlighted as being in his ancestral line is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, whom David took as his own. Psalms like Psalm 32 it would seem. Psalm 51 is specifically said in the in the superscript to be about this very instance where God leaves record for us of David's prayer and David's inspired writings about his uh, sin and his failure and how he comes back from it. I'd also argue that a psalm like Psalm 38 kind of sounds like it's in the same kind of uh, zone as far as David's headspace and as he recovers from this sin. This is a really, really, uh, is a really, really important story. And it tells us something really important about sin, about the nature of sin, about the, 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 the anatomy of sin and how it's put together, about the journey that you go through whenever you give in to sin. And the truth is, it's not a journey that any of us um, look at and we're like, oh, what a surprise. I don't, I don't know anything about that. No, we read it and it resonates with just about anyone, if you're being honest, because you see yourself in David's failures. And it's not the picture of a man who's been broken down and sort of grabbed by love and romance or by temptation and he sits there and it draws from his breath the from a baffled king a broken hallelujah not really i mean well maybe by the end of the story but david's not someone who is who's a sympathetic figure here at least not a sympathetic figure that we um 
want to align ourselves with in his actions here, at least not in the early going. So here, here's the way I want to start with the story. Uh, there's basically three movements. There's the things that lead up to the commission of this horrible sin that David commits. There's the actual committing of the sin, and then there's the aftermath. So things that lead up to the sin, the sin itself, and the aftermath. And I want to talk about two key elements to the lead up to the sin, two key elements to the actual commission of the sin, and two key elements to the aftermath. So three pairs here to try to understand this journey that David went on and what he learned and needed to learn and what we need to learn from this so that hopefully by God's grace and through his wisdom, if we'll have faith in him, uh, we can avoid the kinds of failures that David commits here. Or when we do commit these same kind of failures, come back from them just like he did. Because, I want to say this at the outset, while this is a dark story and there's nothing really admirable about David except a little bit of how he handles things in the aftermath, but as far as the lead up to this sin, the commission of the sin, honestly, it reads like a totally different character. You think this is not the man who who, who played the, the music that pleased the Lord. This is not the man who went out on the battlefield with Goliath. This is not the man who... Uh, helped Mephibosheth. This is not the man who uh, sang a dirge for Jonathan and Saul because he loved him. This is not a man who has done all the good things, brought the the temp, the, 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 uh, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and wanted to build the temple. It's not the, even the same guy. It seems like a completely different character in the story. But the truth is, it's the same man. It's the same person. And we would do well to learn from his story how quickly and how far you can fall into sin if you're not careful. All right, so first... What led up to this sin? In 2 Samuel 11, you can listen to the text and uh, and hear a couple of things. All right, in the spring when the kings went out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. All right, our first key to what led up to the sin. What led up to the sin, key number one. David didn't do a good thing that he could have been doing. David didn't do a good thing that he could have been doing. I don't know that it was sinful for David to... I don't know that he was like abandoning his post to not go out. It doesn't say that in the text. But there is a specific detail in the text. That kings went out to war at this time. And David didn't. David sent out his commander instead. In his stead. Uh, That's significant. What if this story had been... And David went out to war with his his, uh, soldiers... And they fought. Now, by the way, maybe David was injured. Maybe David couldn't go out to war. All right, so I want to be fair. I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here. But this is significant. This all started with David not doing good, not doing a good thing. He's not doing a bad thing, but he's not doing a good thing. A lot of times we say, I don't know how I fell into this sin. I don't know how this happened. I don't know how I gave into, you know, whatever the case may be. But then you trace back, what, what good did you do that day? Um, in Jesus' model prayer, whenever he taught people lead us to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Do you remember how the prayer starts? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about the order of that. Jesus says, first you need to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Which, by the way, if you're praying that, you can't just pray, oh God, do stuff. You're actually saying, God, make me do stuff. Make me live under submission of your kingdom rule. Make me be obedient to your will. And then Jesus says, pray at the end, lead us not into temptation. And then sometimes say, I don't know why I was led into temptation. I don't know why I gave into this. You know why? Because you weren't being ruled by him, the king. You weren't doing his will. And so, yeah, you gave into temptation because you weren't doing good. The thing that led up to David committing the sin is he wasn't doing good that he could have been doing. 
right, what's the other key to this prelude to the sin, the thing that led up to it? Verse 2, it says, One evening David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. You might think of like a like a porch, you know, I mean, these are uh, ancient Near Eastern homes, and so he's he's on the roof, and he's looking out over a balcony, uh, looking out on his on his kingdom, whatever the case may be, strolling around, and it says from the roof from the roof he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. Still not a sin, not a sin to happen to see a woman bathing. By the way, I should say this very clearly. Well, actually, I'll save that for a second. Um, so David sent someone to inquire about her, and the person who searched out this woman uh, and who she was says, "Isn't this Bathsheba?" daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. All right, what does David do wrong here? Well, actually, let me say a couple of things about the details here. This woman, Bathsheba, is the wife of one of David's most trusted soldiers. You can find this name in 2 Samuel chapter 23. You can actually find the reference to Eliam also, who was integral in David's kingdom. So basically, what David does is he looks out and he sees this beautiful woman. He inquires about her. And what he finds out is, is that she is... The, the daughter of one of his trusted advisors and somebody who he relied upon in his kingdom, and that it's the wife of one of his most trusted soldiers. What's the wrong thing that David's done? I mean, technically still, now we're getting a little more like, uh-oh, this, is, this doesn't smell right. I mean, hey, not going out to war, maybe that's not wrong. I understand how that would have helped you not give in to your sin eventually, but it's not wrong. This one, we're creeping closer to an actual sin. But it wasn't the sin wasn't that he saw the beautiful woman bathing. That's no problem. That was I mean I'm not saying it's a great thing clearly by the story, um, but it's not wrong to see something alluring or see something beautiful or see something that might be a source of temptation. He could have turned around, walked back down the stairs into his room, or turned around and off the balcony into the bedroom. However the arrangement was in the in the architecture of his house, he could have just turned around and walked away. But he doesn't. He inquired. Not only was he not doing good, which was sort of the the prelude, the lead up to his sin, but he inquired about a temptation. He hasn't done anything yet, but he's exploring it. Maybe that's the way to say it instead of just inquiring, but he's exploring the temptation. He saw her, and clearly he kept thinking about her long enough to go and ask one of his servants, Hey, go go find out who that woman is. I saw her over there. Or maybe, hey, come here, come here, come here. Go find out who that is right over there. He explored the temptation. Hadn't done anything yet, but he was exploring it. He was thinking about it. He was making plans. He was trying to assess, is this something I want to pursue or not? This woman was not his wife. This woman did not belong to him. Whether or not, And then he finds out not only that, but she actually does belong to someone else. Now, that should be the end of the story, but it's not. And now we're moving into he's really committing sin. But before we run away from this point, I just want to make it clear. I need to be careful about exploring temptations. You know what I mean? I'm going to dabble in listening to music that's illicit, watching movies that is stuff that conjures up evil thoughts, or reading up on sinful things uh, to, to kind of spark my imagination about those things, engaging in conversation that may be about things that aren't righteous and aren't holy. Now, I'm not necessarily doing the bad thing. I'm just kind of listening, and I'm considering it in my mind exploring it, in my conversation exploring it, maybe even in practical ways setting myself up for, and whatever the sin may be. Here, clearly we can think about sexual sin, but what about um, 
you know, gambling, trying to take advantage of people financially? Uh, what about lying? What about cheating? What about, you know, figuring out ways to be lazy on your job and take advantage of whatever the case may be? We explore the temptation, and that's what leads up to the actual sin. All right, so he doesn't do the good that he ought to do, and then he explores the temptation. And what happens? He actually gives into the sin. Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her, or I think some translations say to take her. This is intentional language, I think. And I almost made a comment about this earlier. I, some people wrongly, and I'm not sure that Mr. Cohen intentionally uh, wrote his song to promote this idea, but some people, I believe, wrongly present uh, Bathsheba as this uh, sort of temptress kind of figure. This woman was taking a bath, and the king was at a very specific type of vantage point so that he could see her. She's not out here trying to dress herself up like a prostitute or something like that. All right, She wasn't doing anything wrong by bathing. And she, from what we can tell in the text, and that's all we have is what's said, she doesn't make a choice to come. Now, I don't know what happened whenever she and David actually came together. But what I know is it says David sent messengers to get her or to take her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. The point being, David is the aggressor here. David is the one taking advantage of this situation. And people will try to put words and define these things. And I think that's probably not very wise given sociological and psychological difference between our culture and their culture and how they would have thought about sex and between men and women and all this kind of stuff. But here's what I know. David is the one committing sin here. And there's really nothing presented about Bathsheba specifically um, as being a commission of sin. Maybe she was. Maybe she was in on it. Maybe she wanted to do bad. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is how badly David sins here as he takes her and he uh, lies with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David takes another man's wife, uh, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, the consequences of uh, this sin. Uh, okay, so what does David actually do wrong here? We've seen the things that led up to it. Uh, what is, what's, the, what's going on with the actual commission of the sin? Fundamentally, what we see is David is seeking out what's best for him. And really, all sin boils down to that. All sin boils down to all the, and this goes all the way back. Go back to Adam and Eve in, in Genesis chapter 3. What was wrong? Or uh, lots of things wrong. How, what, what were they doing when they gave in to sin? It says that Eve, she saw the fruit, that it was desirable to the eyes, it was good for food, and it was desirable to make one wise. You know what she wasn't thinking about? God. You know what she wasn't thinking about? Um, her husband and the rest of the human race that would, would come from them. She wasn't thinking about anything except herself. In this moment, I can seek out this kind of good for me. And here David does the same thing. Here he sees a beautiful woman, just like Eve saw a beautiful fruit. Um, he determines that this beautiful woman is someone who will be a source of pleasure for him or fulfillment for him, just like uh, Eve not only saw the beautiful fruit, but saw that it was good for food. David here sees this woman is good for not food, not actual sustenance, but for sexual pleasure. Here she's going to be good. He's seeking out what's good for him. And I don't know that it was wisdom, but we might say joy or pleasure or whatever other thing you could attach to um, uh, as, a, as a result of 
a sexual encounter like this with a beautiful woman. That's what David sees. But all of it's about him. He's not thinking about his kingdom. He's not thinking about this woman. He's not thinking about her husband. Well, I mean, he is thinking about him because he knows that it's his one of his soldiers and this also her father is this trusted um, advisor of his, this member of his, his uh, sort of royal cabinet or whatever you want to call it. But David's not making choices based on those people. And he's certainly not making choices based on God. There's no mention of David prayed to the Lord for guidance or David remembered what the Lord had said in his word or whatever. No, David is just thinking about himself, what he wants, what he thinks, what he feels in that moment. And that's all it's about for him. He's seeking out himself. Think about the last time you committed a sin. And you probably don't think that hard or that long before. Now, the last time you did something wrong, you burst out in anger. You committed lust. You lied about something. You took something that wasn't you. Whatever the case may be, who were you thinking about? It wasn't God and it wasn't other people. This is why Jesus said the greatest commandment is love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you really do that, you don't have any room for these kinds of sins. Because if you really love God with everything you've got, I wouldn't give in to these sins. If I really love my neighbor as myself, I wouldn't have any room to commit sins like this because I'd be thinking about others and not myself. David seeks out his himself and his own interests, and that's why he gives into the sin. All right, but there's something else he does, and I'm not going to read all the details, but you can read it in 2 Samuel 11. Basically, the rest of the chapter outlines how David covers up his sin. Once again, just like Adam and Eve tried to cover up with uh, fig leaves or leaves in the garden there, David tries to cover up. First, he tries to cover up by getting Uriah to go home to his wife. But Uriah says, oh, my brothers are out in battle. I can't go to my wife. That'd be wrong. They don't get to be with their wives. That doesn't work. So then David tries to get Uriah drunk. Even a drunk Uriah is too noble to go home to his wife. So that doesn't work either for David. Uh, and so the last thing David does to try to cover this up, of course, he wants Uriah to go home to then think the baby's his and not David's. And so then the last thing David does is he sends Uriah with a letter to the commander of the army, Joab, where David instructs Joab to put Uriah in the heat of the battle to withdraw all the rest of Israel's troops so that Uriah and his band of soldiers will be killed in battle. Thus, and then David can take Bathsheba to be his wife, covering up uh, his sin. How often do we do that? I commit a sin. I do wrong. I mess up. And what do I do? I turn to cover it up, to try to make it all work out where nobody else knows about it. And you know what? Truth is, I'm sure, well, we know some people. We know Joab. We know some of David's other servants knew about what was going on. They saw Bathsheba. They had to bring Bathsheba to the palace. People knew. But maybe David could think not everybody would know. And, and not all the people that might matter would know. And these people will keep their mouth shut. And it's fine. You know what? You can keep sin a secret, but there's only one person. There's only one member in the audience that matters when it comes to our sin or our righteousness and that's God and I want to say ironically that's that's not the right word uh, tragically again I don't mean it in like oh poor pitiful David but or poor pitiful me but whenever we try to cover up what we actually end up doing is compounding our sin and that's the tragedy of covering up our sin is that you actually commit more sin the sin of deception the sin of extra violence the sin of of hypocrisy all the sins that david uh committed or the sin that he committed in taking bathsheba he then makes it even worse with the sins that followed it all right what led up to the sin david wasn't doing something good he wasn't doing anything bad but he wasn't doing anything good and he explored the temptation instead of turning away from it what did he do when the sin actually came upon him? Well, he was seeking out what would please him. He wasn't trying to love God and he wasn't trying to love others. And that's why he committed this sin. And then 
he covers it up, which means he committed even more sins. Well, what about in the aftermath? In 2 Samuel 12, the prophet, so, uh, the prophet Nathan comes to David. And he tells him this story about a, about a man who was very rich, who uh, knew of a poor man who just had one little tiny lamb. And when the rich man was going to have a party with his friends, he goes and he takes that one little lamb from the poor man and kills it and eats it. And David is incensed, enraged, furious. Ah, this guy's going to pay. He's going to be punished. This is the worst. And Nathan turns to David and he says, you are the man. You're the one I'm talking about. Why are you so upset? And of course, David immediately knows that he's been had, that his sin against God, his sin against Bathsheba, his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba's father, his sin against his troops, his sin against his nation was brought before his eyes. It's almost like David didn't realize it before. I'm not saying that he never knew he was doing wrong, but sometimes sin does that to you, right? It makes you crazy, it makes you ignore the bad that you're really doing. What's David to do next? Well, the thing I love, and this is the good part of the story, I mean, it, it, it doesn't take the bitter taste out of your mouth of the things that occurred in chapter 11, but it does give us hope for whenever we commit sin, whenever we give in, whenever we do just like David did. He turns to God. Uh, in uh, uh, 2 Samuel 12 and in verse 13, it says, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses. He admits it. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't try to make anybody feel sorry for him. He just says, I've done wrong. Not only that, he, he appeals to God. Um, not only does he turn to God in this confession, but he turns to God in making appeals. In verse 16, um, of course, the punishment, by the way, is that the baby is going to die. Not only that, but David's house is going to be a house of war. God pronounces judgment on David's house for his sin. But verse 16, David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of the house stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. Do you hear what, what this says? David is appealing to God, not only confessing his sin, but appealing to God on behalf of this boy. Think about how most of this story is about how David wasn't loving other people, and now he desperately loves this young boy. By the way, it's not like this would have necessarily been his heir. Turns out Bathsheba's son is going to be David's heir. But David had other heirs, other children who could have... So this is not a, a terribly selfish move by David. I'm sure he wanted to have this child. But also this child would have represented his sin and been a reminder of his guilt and his wickedness and all this bad stuff. And certainly people would have known about this. And yet David still pleads for the boy. He appeals to God to rescue this child from death. God doesn't grant that prayer, but in verse 20... After the child dies, it says, Then David got up from the ground, he washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house, and worshipped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food, and he ate. Do you hear what David's doing? He's turning to God. He's fully repenting. I mean, he worships God even as God doesn't answer his prayer. Well, yeah, I mean, he doesn't answer his prayer. And God is punishing David. He's issuing judgment on David. David accepts it. What do you do in the aftermath of your sin? Turn yourself back to God fully. That's what we see in David. Confess your sin. Admit you're wrong. Don't, and don't just convince, oh, I am a sinner. No, no, David confesses, I have sinned. Talk about the thing you did to God. Not only confess your sin, but uh, appeal to God for help, for restoration, for salvation. And however God answers, keep repenting. Turn yourself over to God to submit to Him and obey Him no matter what the cost may be to you or what's occurred in your life. 
Turn yourself to God. That's what David does in the aftermath of your sin. And here's the last thing he does in the aftermath of his sin. In verses 24 and 5, uh, now David has taken on Bathsheba as his wife. Um, which on the one hand, we might say, oh, well, he got the girl after all. Well, look, I'm not saying he didn't want Bathsheba in his life, but I'm not sure that he would have. I'm not sure that he would have. This would not have been a great honor for his kingdom. He had other wives and other children and other offspring. But he takes this woman, uh, keeps this woman, I should say, his wife. He took her whenever Uriah died, but he keeps this woman as his wife. And verse 24 says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and lay with her, knew her. And she gave birth to a son and named him Solomon, uh, which sounds like the, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Then it says, Yahweh loved him, and he sent a message through the prophet Nathan, who named him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, because of the Lord. All right, what do we see in the aftermath of David's sin? Not only does he turn back to God, but he lives in the love of God. I think one of our greatest mistakes is whenever we think, oh, I've sinned, I've messed up. It's all over for me. God's done with me. It's not true. I'm not trying to say this to justify sins or to make it like, oh, okay, it'll be fine, even if you mess up in a big way and ruin, kill somebody and, and have a child die as a consequence of your actions and ruin a woman's life and ruin your nation and have all kinds. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, even if you've committed the most devastating sorts of sins, that doesn't eliminate God's love. That doesn't ruin God's love for you. No matter what your temptation may be, no matter what you've done wrong, God still loves you. God still wants you. God still desires you. And David, every day whenever he would call his son Solomon, or maybe he called him what the prophet called him, Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord, to be reminded of the peace that comes through living in and embracing and receiving the love of God even and maybe especially after we've failed. Sometimes we can think, oh yeah, it makes sense that God loves me. I'm kind of a good person. You know, I, I, I don't do a lot of the really bad stuff. So yeah, I get that God loves me. No, no, no. God loves you because he loves you. He just does. And part of his love is judgment and punishment and turning away from your sin. And part of his love is continuing to be there even after you fail. Leonard Cohen's song, uh, one of the, there's a lot of verses that get sung in different versions of it. It's kind of an interesting story of, of how the song was written and performed and performed by different people. But one of, the, one of the lines reads like this. Maybe there's a God above, but all I've ever learned from love was how to shoot at someone who outdrew you. Here the speaker is thinking like a gunslinger. You try to whip out the gun and try to shoot and you may get shot and actually die as a consequence. And it's not a cry that you hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. I think a lot of people think like this. Maybe there's a God, maybe not. But love and romance and the spirituality and fulfillment I derive from that, it's mostly a disappointment and a crushing blow. It's not seeing the light. It's not anything good. It's just a cold and broken hallelujah. And you keep saying praise God and all that kind of stuff, but what's it even going to mean? Let me tell you, 
if there's anything wrong with this song, it's that line right there. Because the truth is, no matter what wrong we've done or how far we've strayed from God, He still loves. And His love is not a war. His love is our salvation. It's our restoration. And the reason why David would go on and still be known as the man after God's heart, even after this sin, even after this kind of wrong that he did, is because God loved him. And the same is true for people like you and me. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.